It's good to be with you. Uh, Kathy and I have been part of this church now for almost three years. We have really enjoyed getting to meet and to know many of you. We've enjoyed the fellowship so much. And uh, we especially uh, appreciate the opportunity to come Sunday by Sunday and worship God with you. I cannot tell you how much it means to us to know that when we gather with God's people at this place, we're going to focus on the Lord rather than on ourselves. And that has meant the world to us. And we thank you for the opportunity. And we thank the leadership also for entrusting me with the opportunity to share God's word uh, with you today. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But I want to begin with a story, and I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that you are traveling in the northern part of the United States. Such a welcome relief after the heat and the humidity that we are now suffering here. It's just so yucky outside. But you're able to get away with your family. You're able to go up north. You're just so excited about it. You're enjoying a beautiful part of the United States. As you travel on a small highway, you are enjoying the lush greenery, a welcome relief from all of the brown down here. You're enjoying the pleasant temperatures and the prospect of several days being with those that you love the most. No emails, no television, no phone calls. And then you hear the dreaded sound, a loud bang, and then flap, 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 flap. And you know you've got a flat tire. You've blown a tire. No worry. You'll just go to the trunk. You'll get out the spare and you'll replace it. And then you'll be on your way. But you're, you go to the trunk and you see that the spare tire is also flat. And now the fact that this convenient mode of communication that we now have called the cell phone, the fact that it is not working where you are begins to weigh heavily upon you. The sun is setting, and you recall that you haven't seen any other cars on this road for quite some time. <laughs> what do you do? God, you've got to help us. Lord, you must deliver us. And no sooner are you done praying with your family than you see some vehicles down the road headed your way. Cars are coming. Not one, not two, not three, but four vehicles are coming. They're all beautiful, brand new black SUVs. They pull up beside you. They find out what is going on. And strong men in dark suits with sunglasses pop out of the vehicles. They pull out some equipment and they proceed to fix your flat tire and spare. You're ecstatic. What an answer to prayer. You say, I don't know how to thank you. And, and who are you guys anyway? Where have you come from? And one of the men says, follow me. He takes you over to one of the SUVs and he says, we stopped because of the man inside this vehicle. He ordered us to stop and help you. And the window rolls down and a face appears, and you're shocked as you recognize that this is the governor of the state in which you are driving. He says he's just so happy that he found you. He tells you to be careful. He wishes you well, and the motorcade drives away. You're stunned. You were scared for a moment because you were stranded. Then you were amazed when help comes. But now you are completely astounded at 
who came to your aid that a person of such importance thought enough of you to lend a help in your time of need? Now, that's just a little fictitious story that I made up. But something very close to it actually did happen. In January 2017, a major snowstorm blanketed the state of New York. And I didn't make my story about a major snowstorm because that we kind of don't understand what that is down here in South Texas. <laughs> but the governor was in his motorcade when they spotted a stranded motorist north of New York City, and he and his aides popped out of their vehicle, hooked up a cable to the car, dragged it out of the snowbank, and unlike my story, the governor got out of his car, and he was working to help that person. That's him down there looking underneath the car. These stories illustrate the amazing truth of the passage that is before us today in Philippians chapter 2. And so I want you to follow along as I read from verses 5 through 8 right now. And you have a Bible there, and so I'd like you to open it up to Philippians chapter 2. And if you're not yet really adept in uh, finding the books of the Bible, it's on page 980. Philippians chapter 2, and this is what the Apostle Paul said. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do we see what this passage is saying? God himself came to our rescue. Although in the past he had sent prophets, this time it was not enough. In the past he had sent teachers, but this time it was not enough. In the past he had sent priests and judges and even angels, but this time it was not enough. This time God himself came. And this is one of the core truths of our faith. We must never, never tire of hearing it, thinking about it, and being amazed by it. This is what makes us unique in our faith compared to all the religions of the world that our God came and emptied himself and humbled himself. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this. It's not just that he came, it's how he came. In verse 7, Paul tells us that he emptied himself. And what he means by this is that he he let go of the outward form of his glory when he became a man. It's like he's saying that he changed clothes. He used to wear the clothes of glory, but he exchanged it for the clothes of humanity. Now, now make sure you understand this. This does not mean that he ceased to be God. Some people have, have misunderstood that. God cannot cease to be God. He continued to be God, but you just wouldn't know it. Imagine something else with me for a moment. Imagine that all of us are living in Nazareth, and it's about six months before Jesus is baptized. And it's the Sabbath, and we're worshiping God, 
And the men are on one side and the women are on the other side. And, and you're sitting there and you're worshiping. And, and you know the guy on the right, his name is Eliezer. And, and you know the guy on the left, his name is Yeshua. We commonly notice Jesus. And you're worshiping and you're praying and you can hear his voice and, and you can hear him sing songs of praise to God. And you know him pretty well. He's a good carpenter. In fact, you've even had him into your home. And you remember the time that he came in and he started measuring for a new cabinet for you. And he measured this way and he measured this way and he asked you about the kind of wood that you wanted. And you were very satisfied with your work. And you've been very content all these years to know him and to know that he's a very good carpenter, the, the best carpenter that there is in the area. And so there you are sitting next to the God of the universe. And you don't even know it. Think of it. What was it like year after year to have the God of the universe in your presence and you didn't even know it? This is part of what Paul has in mind when he says he emptied himself of the outward form of glory and he put on the garments of humanity the prophet Isaiah put it this way. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I remember in years past, some people said that they looked at this verse and they said, Oh, Jesus must have been ugly. But no, it doesn't say that. It just says that Jesus just looked normal. He, there's nothing about him that made him stand out from the crowd. He just, just one of the guys as, as you would look at him. Several years ago, my wife and I were in uh, Greece. I was speaking at a conference here in Greece. And um, the taxi driver who took us from the airport to where we needed to go, and then he picked us up a week later, he got out of the taxi and he stood tall and straight. And if you had put a crown on his head, and a robe around his shoulders, you would have thought that he was a king. It was unbelievable, and he was just a taxi driver. He kind of looked like Sean Connery. You know, I mean, this guy, he had it all. And, and I thought, Kathy, surely he is a descendant of Alexander the Great. I mean, look at this guy. You see, we could see a person like this and say, surely, in spite of the fact that he was just a taxi driver, but, but you look at a man like this and you say, surely there is a leader. But it wasn't that way with Jesus. The prophet said, no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He would never be on the front of a GQ magazine. When I went to Ethiopia a few, a few weeks ago, um, I took a book called Miraculous Movements. And it's a book that explains about the mighty works of God in many countries of Eastern Europe. And I handed it to uh, one of the brothers that was there, and he kind of looked at it and smiled, and he said, uh, uh, yeah, Jonathan, I, I know about this book. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, he said, a Friday night uh, at the banquet, because I was primarily going for this banquet to help launch this ministry in Ethiopia to reach unreached people. He says, at the banquet on Friday night, I'm going to introduce you to the person who knows firsthand all of these stories about miracles and signs and wonders and God doing mighty works and entire villages coming to Christ. I said, great, I can't wait to meet him. 
And so Friday night came. There was about 350 people there. I was sitting at this table, and, and the whole uh, 98% of the proceedings during this meeting were in Amharic. And I didn't know what they were talking about. During the singing part, I only understood one word. It was the word Jesus. And, but that's all I needed to worship with them. And I, there were, actually, there was another word. There was the word alleluia. I think that's in every language. And so, uh, so it was very good to be there that night, but everything else was in their language, Amharic. And so I didn't know very much what was going on. But the person next to me, he was just the sweetest, most humble brother. And he, he kind of whispered, now you need to stand up. Now you need to sit down. And then now, now we're doing this. And he was just so helpful and such a servant. And I thought, and this is just the sweetest, most humble brother. I found out later that he was the one who had all the stories that are in this book of God's mighty power. I was sitting next to the man who had witnessed signs and wonders, and I didn't know it while I was sitting next to him. That was a good thing to see and a good thing to learn. And in the same way it was with God when he became a man. He didn't come in a motorcade of SUVs or a motorcade of chariots. He came humbly. We should be careful not to let appearances fool us. But Paul says something else about the coming of Christ. Not only did he empty himself, in verse 8, if you'll look at it with me, it says he humbled himself. And then he describes what humility is. And a lot of times we get, uh, a lot of times we misunderstand what humility is. Sometimes we think that humility is just beating ourselves over the back or saying, oh, I'm, I'm so humble and, and I'm so poor and I'm so wretched. That's not humility. Humility is obedience. Yes, Father, I will do exactly what you want. And we get that from this verse here where it says that he humbled himself by obeying his father and going all the way to death on a criminal's cross. That was humility. He didn't just empty himself. He humbled himself and went to the cross for us. So <clears throat> you see in my little story that I made up, I had the AIDS fixing the flat tire. But in January 2017, during that snowstorm, the governor actually got out of the car, got down on his hands and knees, looked underneath the car, hooked up the cable, and then helped to pull it out. The reality was better than my little fiction. But the story of Jesus is infinitely better than that. God himself came to your rescue. This time, as I said before, he didn't just send a prophet or a priest or even an angel. God himself came to live among us. He was a blue-collar worker. He ate with us. He drank with us. He went to wedding celebrations with us. He went to funerals with us and wept. And then... He went all the way to the cross to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. If you've never thought deeply on this passage, I hope from this day forward you will think deeply on it. I, many of us consider this one of the top ten passages in the entire Bible for its profound thought and storytelling. But Paul is doing far more than just laying out profound theology. Paul actually has a purpose in writing these amazing words. 
There's an undercurrent of disunity in this church. He names people in chapter 4, exhorting them to get along with each other. Now, the disunity is only minor at this stage, but he knows, as, as we know very well, that small things can grow and become major. And he wants to take no chances. He wants this wonderful church to remain united. They are helping him in ministry. They are a key church to reach the area of Macedonia. It is crucial that they remain united. Last week when, when Britt shared from Philippians 1, he, he talked a little bit about verse 27. Let me read verse 27 to you, or, or you can look right there in your Bible. It'll be on page 180. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants this church and every other church to remain steadfast and united for the sake of the gospel. And this is why he writes extensively in verses 1 through 11 about unity. He introduces it in chapter 1. Now he's going to go into detail about unity and what it looks like. And so in verse 1, he says this. If there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any comfort from his love, if there is any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, and then he goes on and exhorts them. But he tells us basically in this verse that this is what we have in Christ. Do you need to be cheered on at times? There is encouragement in Christ. Draw near to him and you will be encouraged. Are you grieving or are you distressed over your circumstances? You will find comfort in his love, Paul says. Do you feel alone in your walk with God? What you will find if you draw near to Christ is participation by the Spirit, fellowship with the Spirit. Do you feel unloved? Do you feel that others just don't understand you? You will find affection and sympathy from the Lord. That's what he offers you. And so Paul begins this very focused section on unity by talking about the resources that are ours that we will find in Jesus Christ. Encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, and sympathy. And then in verses 2 through 4, he gives us six practical steps to take, which if we will, if we will take them, we will experience unity with one another. Here's what he says. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Count others more significant than yourself. Look to the interests of others. Be of the same mind, he says. That, that's, a, that's a tall order. That's challenging. Because we have a lot of different opinions. A, a lot of different opinions on some of the minor things of theology. And, and we have a lot of different opinions on how things ought to work in the church. And unity is hard work. 
You know what is not hard work? Disunity. That's easy. Anybody can be disunited. But hard work it is to be united and to work through things. And so he says, be of the same mind. Have the same love. He said, well, the same as what? There's a lot of different ideas on this. It could be have the same love for one another that Christ has for us. Have uh, the same kind of love for one another. In other words, don't be partial with one another, but, but love each other with, with the love of Christ. Not, don't love people based on how they look or how much they make or, or whatever. It had the same kind of love. It, Paul may have had in mind, had the same kind of love that you showed at the very beginning when this church started and you were so excited about the Lord. Have that same love right now. Lots of different ideas. Be a full accord in one mind. This literally, in the original language, means to be of one soul. And then I think we understand all the others. Count others more important than ourselves. Look to the interests of others. What would happen? What would happen in our church if we lived these six things consistently? Not just when the opportunities come up, but if we were proactive in implementing these things. What would happen in our workplace if all the employees and managers lived these things consistently? And don't mean to put you on the spot, Scott, but I admire so much what you're doing with your company, Southwest Exteriors, and how you're trying to, to permeate that, the, the culture of your company with, with the kingdom of God, the, the values of the kingdom of God. And Kathy and I have seen it firsthand there. It's a great inspiration to us. What of all companies and our workplaces where you teach or, or wherever you are, if you sought to implement these things where you live, whether you have authority or not in the workplace, if you lived by these things where you work? And what would happen in our families if we increasingly practice these six things? But we don't live them consistently, do we? We're not always willing to do the hard work, are we? Of being of the same mind. We don't always want to consider others more important than ourselves. I know I don't. Many times I think I'm a lot more important than this person. <laughs> That's wrong, Paul says. We sometimes are proud. And sometimes... Here, here's, here's the one that affects a lot of us a lot of the time. Sometimes we don't live this way because we're afraid to live this way. If I live this way, who's going to watch out for me? I might be overlooked for that job promotion. I might not have my needs met. I might be humiliated. And if I really go all out for the Lord, I might die. Well, yeah, that's true. Which is why Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And why he wound up on the cross, because that's how he lived. Paul knows how people think. He, he knows their questions. He knows their concerns. And he knows their fears. And so after laying out the amazing resources in verse 1, and then after giving us six practical steps in verses 2 through 4, he then provides a seventh and most powerful step 
And that's what verses 5 through 11 is about. He uses the power of example, the power of an inspiring story, the inspiring story above all other inspiring stories. And I think we know what it is to hear something or to see something that just makes us feel good. And inside we say, I want to be like that person. Aren't we that way? I know we are. So this takes us back where I started a few minutes ago. Here is the seventh step. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be held on to, clutched on to, but he let it go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at our Lord, Paul says. Look at what he did. Yes, and look at how it ended for him. That's what makes me scared, Paul. <laughs> I'm still afraid. I'm still reluctant to live this way. Yes, that is how, that is what happened to Jesus in his story. But I think we know that's not the end of the story. And that takes us to the final verses for today. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who went the lowest was exalted the highest. Paul says, don't end the story by looking at the suffering on the cross. Get through that and look over here at the exaltation of Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. And so he says, if you can see both of those, then you will have the power to live this way that he asks all of us to live. The lower we go, the higher we will go. Don't be afraid to go low with God. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus into the low places because he says he will be with you and he'll take you to the high places. And that's what Paul tells us here in this passage. And this is the reason why we can humble ourselves. Paul's not just giving us beautiful sounding theology. He's trying to give us something very practical and urge us to be united with one another. And so every Sunday, we see this identity statement. And the way it is with things that are frequently repeated it becomes like wallpaper. You know what I mean? Where you don't even think about it anymore. But this is, this is who we are as a community. Grace is a gospel. You know what? Let's read it together. 
All right, let's do this. Are you ready? Here we go. Grace is a gospel community enjoying the presence of God, making disciples, and developing kingdom leaders to live on mission. And we get a real good picture of what that looks like in these verses. What's a disciple? Look here at these verses. What does it mean to develop leaders? What is leadership about? Look at these verses and you'll see leadership. What does it mean to live on mission? Look at these verses and you'll understand what the mission is about. May God do this in my heart. May God do this in the hearts of the leadership. May God do this in our church. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you for these, uh, this amazing, amazing passage that uh, we have here in Philippians 2. And uh, I confess it is, after all these years of following you, it is still challenging. And I know that I fall short. Father, we ask you for grace to help us to focus our eyes upon Jesus and to follow him with joy in our hearts, knowing what the outcome is. Only you can do this. We thank you for this church. Thank you for these blessed people who are here, their love for you, their hunger for you, and may you have your way in their hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.